about a week and a half ago. I voted early for the first time ever. If the polls are open, I vote, but I normally wait until election day to vote. This year, though, I didn't want to take any chances with anything happening on election day. I was pleasantly surprised to see a good crowd of people at my county board of elections filling out their ballots on a rainy Friday afternoon. So once I got through the line, I got verified, received my ballot, and found a carol to fill out the little squares. It felt good being able to do my civic duty as a resident of my city, my state, and as an American. My first election-related memory was of the 1988 presidential election between Vice President George H.W. Bush and Senator Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts. At the time, we were living right outside Cleveland, Ohio. While I spent most of my childhood in Detroit, there were a few years where my family and I moved around the country quite a bit. And at this point, this is where we were. I was a second grader at a local Catholic grade school in Cleveland Heights. We had our own presidential elections that day at school, and I proudly cast my vote for Bush. The results of the election at school were 90% for Dukakis, the Democrat, and 10% for Bush, the Republican. In retrospect, it's not super surprising since Cleveland is a Democratic stronghold and most kids will align with who their parents like. Even though my candidate lost at school, and even though I knew even then that the election was fake and it wouldn't count towards the real thing, it was still exciting to be able to have a say. After school, I told my parents about it and they asked me how I chose my vote. I told them that since Bush was vice president, he had more experience than Dukakis, so he would make a better president. That night, I remember sitting in front of the TV with my parents watching the election results roll in and seeing my candidate actually win, which was super exciting for a weird and nerdy kid. At this point, I was hooked, and I couldn't wait until I was 18 and I could vote for real. It's funny how logically a seven-year-old's mind thinks. No life experiences, prejudices, or ideology factoring into the choice to vote for one candidate over another. It's such a contrast to arguing in the local politics group on Facebook, seeing tweets, or occasionally talking in real life with people who declare their opinions as fact and resort to anger and name-calling when being asked to support their views with verifiable evidence. I'm not saying a detached way of voting is necessarily the right way to do it, especially since, say, governing based on certain ideologies have real consequences for real people. But it amazes me that we live in an age where democracy is eroding, and so many Americans would rather live with the comfortable lie than the inconvenient truth. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Tuesday, November 6th, is the 2018 midterm elections. As of this recording, according to 538, purely based on aggregated scientific polling numbers, Democrats have a 77% chance to take control of the House, or a 7 in 9 likelihood of doing so. Based on these same polls, the Republicans have an 85.7% chance of keeping the Senate. If this holds, this means a split Congress 
what will this actually mean for governance? If the poll numbers hold, and that's a big if, there's good news and there's bad news. First, the good news. The good news is that there will be a segment of government that is likely to say no to Donald Trump. The House is important in terms of drafting and voting on bills, along with the Senate, so they can introduce and vote on bills that will be aimed at strengthening health care, improving immigration policy, so on and so forth. These might not get past the Senate, but the trade-off is that the awful bills coming out of the GOP aren't likely to sail through either. It's gridlock, to be sure, but better gridlock than our freedoms and the civil rights of many people here in America being stripped away so fast it makes our heads spin. But particularly, the House controls the purse strings. They are in charge of appropriations, or in other words, where our tax dollars actually go. They don't have to continue funding Trump's wall or his other schemes aimed at dividing the country. Of course, as the Democrats have in recent years been more willing to compromise than Republicans, what they do remains to be seen, but one can only hope that they will be more willing to listen to the American people than the GOP. A Democratic House might also be more willing to delve deeper into Trump's dealings with Russia or other aspects of his overall crookedness and corruption. And if evidence is presented suggesting impeachment as an appropriate course of action, they will be more likely to do something with that. The bad news is that the Republican Senate is extremely unlikely to do their part to vote for removal of Trump, even if the House impeaches him. If you're interested in more details on the impeachment and removal process and how that plays out, check out this month's Patreon bonus episode on President Bill Clinton in a Monica Lewinsky scandal, patreon.com slash flying machine. The other piece of bad news is that a Republican Senate will still have advice and consent authority for Trump's federal court picks. This is particularly important because we're not just talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, even though that is important. We're also talking about the lower federal courts potentially being stacked with more Trump sycophants. All of that will take decades to undo. There's another dimension to this that remains to be seen. Over the past couple of years, Trump has been using the Democrats as a scapegoat as to why he and the GOP refuse to address issues such as immigration and health care in a real, comprehensive, non-reactionary way. But the Democrats are not in power in any branch of federal government. We have unified federal government, so right now it's really easy to counter Trump's narrative by pointing out this simple fact. But if the Democrats win control of the House, they will have some power, still not a ton, but more than they do right now, and enough to keep Trump from executing at least some of his agenda. With the distinct possibility of government gridlock, Trump will be able to make a stronger argument that the Democrats are what is coming between himself and fulfilling his promises to his base. Now, here's the thing. I'm of the opinion that gridlock can be good because it means that we're not just sailing through bills willy-nilly. Good governance means understanding and deliberation, which is more likely to come into play with divided government. Divided government, when done right, with the shared goal of running a functioning democracy, can be a good thing. 
And especially when we have an authoritarian occupying the White House and a party of sycophants, we need a strong opposition to mitigate the damage done to our democracy. The problem is, many Americans look at gridlock and just see inefficiency. They see things not getting done, and they look for someone to blame. And Trump is ready with the Democrats' heads on a silver platter. So clearly, it's going to take a lot more than a Democratic victory in the midterms to fix the problem of Trump. The Democrats winning the House might just mean a slight speed bump on the slide into an authoritarian theocracy. But we have to start somewhere to fix this issue. But in any case, this is all conjecture and speculation. As we all know from 2016, the polls are only as accurate as the behavior and conditions that actually occur in the field. In other words, if Democrats and others opposed to Trump and the GOP don't come out to vote on Tuesday, or the voter suppression efforts made by state GOP leaders are successful, the polls won't matter because no matter how it came to be, Trump will have his mandate. When the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013, it set the stage for levels of voter suppression not seen since the days of Jim Crow segregation. Let's dig into that a little bit. Prior to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, many states, especially in the South, placed hurdles that were aimed at keeping racial and ethnic minorities, especially Black Americans, from voting. The 15th Amendment was added to the Constitution in 1870. That lifted voting restrictions based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, or in other words, having been a slave. This mattered because at this point in time, Black Americans constituted 40% of the South's population, so their votes would be huge in terms of transforming government in the South, and during Reconstruction, they were. Reconstruction was a 12-year time period after the Civil War where the South was rebuilding, the South was being occupied by Union troops, and the federal government was figuring out how to reintegrate the former Confederate states into the United States. During this time, many black men held elected office in the former Confederacy. About 2,000 black men held elected office. But this was short-lived. After Reconstruction ended due to the Compromise of 1877, which gave the Republicans the White House in exchange for removing Union troops from the South, without the protection of federal government, these states were left to their own devices, and blacks in the South, mostly former slaves, were vulnerable. Due to intimidation and violence launched by the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacists against blacks who voted or held elected office, the former Confederate leaders were allowed to reestablish power in their states and communities. This led to racial segregation, oppression, and terror for the South's black residents. Now, the 15th Amendment allowed blacks to vote, in theory, but the former Confederate states had inventive ways to get around this. Here are some common ways this happened. So to set the stage, the South was largely democratic and remained as such until sometime after the 1960s realignment. This is why they were called the Solid South. These were not the Democrats we know today. The Southern Democrats at this time were conservatives. And most black Southerners supported Republicans, the party of Lincoln, sure, but more importantly, they were not the conservative Democratic establishment that was focused on oppressing them. 
If blacks voted at the same rates as whites in the South, the Democrats were in danger of losing political dominance. The 15th Amendment applied to the states, but the individual parties were considered private organizations. Because of this, they could draft their own rules for party primaries, and the Democratic Party in many southern states did just that, barring blacks, as well as other racial minorities, such as Mexican Americans in Texas, from voting in the primary. Because these states were dominated by one party, the real decisions were made in the primaries, and white primaries essentially limited their influence. White primaries were essentially banned with the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Smith v. Allwright in 1944. But there were other ways minorities, as well as poor white Americans in some jurisdictions, were kept from voting in the South. And the Southern officials who used them were more covert with the racial intent of these tactics. A couple of common ones were literacy tests and poll taxes. On its face, these weren't racist at all. And this is why they persisted in the South until 1965. But in practice, these tactics were racially biased. There was, of course, a pervasive income and education gap between the races due to Jim Crow segregation and pervasive employment discrimination. Oftentimes, poll workers administered literacy tests to people of color, but not whites. Or more difficult tests were administered based on race. Or the same test was given, but scored differently. Now, some states wanted a more systematic way to keep blacks from voting but sought to limit the effects of these voter suppression tactics on poor whites. So they used what was called a grandfather clause. Grandfather clauses were laws that exempted people who met certain criteria from having to comply with these voting restrictions. Oklahoma's grandfather clause probably has the most fascinating history. In 1910, Oklahoma passed a voter registration law that mandated that all men since women weren't allowed to vote at that time, all men who registered to vote must pass a literacy test. But certain people were exempt. Men who could vote on January 1st, 1866, prior to the 15th Amendment, and their descendants. So those who were eligible for this exemption were generally white men, regardless of economic status. Black men were generally not exempt not only because the vast majority were either former slaves or descended from slaves, but even free black men were kept from voting in most Southern states prior to the Civil War. In 1915, the Supreme Court struck down this law in Gwynn versus U.S. And you'd think that was that, but no. Oklahoma was bound and determined to stop their black population from voting, and they were wasting no time Right after losing in the Gwynn case, the state legislature immediately passed another voter registration law. This law gave citizens a 12-day period from April 30th to May 11, 1916 to register to vote. If they missed that short registration window, they were barred from voting, not just in the next election, but forever. But of course, there was an exemption if you voted in 1914, while the old law was in effect, the one the court struck down, then you wouldn't have to abide by the short registration window. This also wound its way through the courts, and in 1939, in Lane v. Wilson, the Supreme Court ruled that law unconstitutional too. 
but more covert methods of racialized voter suppression were harder to get eliminated through the courts due to the disconnect between the colorblindness of the laws as they were written and the discriminatory ways these laws were executed. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act took aim at these laws too. The Voting Rights Act outlawed these methods of voter restriction. It also required certain states and jurisdictions to obtain pre-clearance from the D.C. District Court or the U.S. Attorney General for any changes in their voting procedures or practices. The pre-clearance formula was based on if the state or jurisdiction used a test or device in the past to suppress the vote, and if the number of registered voters or registered voters who exercised their right to vote was under a certain percentage. Originally, it was 50%. The Voting Rights Act was written as a temporary law that needed to be reauthorized. So every few years, it was reauthorized and it was tweaked here and there. So for example, the 1975 reauthorization included an expansion of the act that included coverage for language minorities, meaning people who are of Native American or Alaskan Native, Asian, or of Spanish heritage. But in 2013, the teeth were taken out of the Voting Rights Act with the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County versus Holder. While the Voting Rights Act was not ruled unconstitutional, the formula used to determine what states and jurisdictions qualify for preclearance was struck down. And without the formula, there is no preclearance. And without preclearance, these states have no oversight in deciding to change their voting rules and regulations. This is why, since the ruling, almost a thousand polling locations have been closed, especially in areas with large concentrations of people of color. This is why Georgia's Secretary of State has worked to enact and enforce voting regulations that disenfranchise the very people who could decide his own race for governor. This is why the push to restrict voters and purge them from the voter rolls in the name of voter integrity has been gaining so much steam across the country because nothing is there to stop them. The 2018 midterm elections are this Tuesday, November 6th. If you don't know where to vote, go to the website of your state's Secretary of State or local Board of Elections or go to vote.org to find out. Just like you have a plan to go to work or to school or any other commitment you have, make sure you have a plan for voting because you're committing to saving our country's democracy. Be sure to vote. And not only that, bring a friend, volunteer to drive. Let's do what we need to do to make the blue wave happen on Tuesday. I have come across several news articles and op-eds focused on the narrative that millennials can't be asked to vote. They would rather focus on video games, eating Tide Pods, shopping, marching, drinking, punching Nazis, or whatever, to vote. Voting is boring. They will protest at their colleges, but don't bother to vote, and so on. The odd thing is, these critics focus on kids who are high school and college age to drive this narrative. It kind of goes along with this larger public image of millennials as giant snowflakes who are prolonging childhood and are ruining society since we're not out here buying houses and cars and getting married young like the previous generations. To be honest, it's kind of a gross view of an entire generation. 
Given that millennials were raised mostly by baby boomers and Gen Xers, I mean, if millennials as a generation are so horrible, then that means baby boomers and Gen Xers were terrible parents. This negative view of millennials also ignores the fact that many millennials hit the job market around the 2008 recession, which means that the opportunities that the older generations had to build credit and especially wealth were not there for millennials. Now, specifically regarding voting, while it is true and has been true for a long, long time that younger people are less likely to vote, there are some things to keep in mind. First of all, we need to be clear about who we're really talking about. Different research organizations define the birth years for millennials slightly differently, but most place millennial birth years from the early 1980s to the mid to late 1990s. Millennials are, for the most part, mid-20s to late-30s. Older millennials, also known as zennials, are much closer to 40 than 20. Most millennials graduated from high school 5, 10, 15 years ago. I'm considered a millennial by most definitions, and my 20-year high school reunion is being planned for next year. Some millennials have their own kids who are graduating from high school soon. Millennials are not young kids. We are solidly adults. Millennials have been on the job market for a while, though many are still not where their parents were at the same age. Less wealth, taking longer to move out of their parents' homes, less likely to own homes or buy new cars, older when they get married, older when they have kids. This is primarily due to the 2008 recession, as well as the burden of student loan debt due to more jobs requiring college degrees plus tuition costs that are outpacing inflation. So while millennials are struggling as a generation, most haven't seen the inside of a high school or college in many, many years. When we talk about these high school and college kids not voting, the people that are really being talked about here are Generation Z or post-millennials. It takes time for younger people, people who may have limited life experience, to fully understand why it is important to vote. Of course, that's not everyone in this generation. Unfortunately, with the rise in mass shootings, as well as police shootings, and other major issues facing young people, too many of them are having to grow up fast, and some do find there is importance in voting and being politically active. For example, the kids who have been politically outspoken due to Parkland and other school shootings, And as an aside, I do find it really strange that some of the same people that criticize high school and college kids for not being politically interested, politically motivated, get upset when kids like the Parkland kids or some of these other kids that have been outspoken because of these school shootings are politically outspoken, are politically active. It's a paradox, really. But in any case, for many young people, It might not be apparent to them yet how much government affects them or will affect them. But besides the youth factor, there's something else to consider that can't simply be chalked up to youth and apathy. Voter suppression. In the past several years, a number of states have made it more difficult for younger people, especially younger adults in college, to vote. There was a time when, in most places, as a college student living on campus, You can register to vote with your campus ID. I remember those times. I did that myself. 
But in the last several years, a lot of states have moved away from accepting college IDs to vote, meaning that for many of these young people, they can't vote where they actually live for most of the year. At the same time, these states will be more likely to accept military ID. And this is generally a political decision, not one based on security, as members of the military, who may also be transient, tend to lean Republican, while younger people overall, especially college students, tend to lean Democratic. Now, some would say that this shouldn't be a problem. College students should just vote absentee instead, using their permanent address. Besides the extra, unnecessary effort that entails to obtain an absentee ballot to vote somewhere they don't actually live most of the year, some states, such as Georgia, make it to where college students don't even qualify to vote absentee. So in these states, you're expected to go to where your parents live on a school day and vote. Yeah, right. And this, again, is by design. A lot of these voter suppression efforts are just that, voter suppression. And one thing we need to understand is that the GOP is operating under the belief that they will only stay in power if fewer people vote. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. That was the late Paul Weirich, who co-founded the Moral Majority with Jerry Falwell, and just as important to why the current GOP is run the way it is, He was one of the founders of the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank that was started in 1971, has guided the modern-day GOP, and has been deeply intertwined in the party and its leaders from Reagan through Trump. The Heritage Foundation has graced us with the talking points that taxes are bad, small government is good. They have also given us an overall conservative Christian-centric agenda. Faith-based initiatives under George W. Bush was from Heritage, and the think tank made arguments against same-sex marriage and other rights for LGBTQ people, as well as attacks on women's access to birth control and reproductive rights, centered in the language of religious liberty. Heritage crafted a health care plan, which Mitt Romney used as the basis of the state health care plan when he was governor of Massachusetts and later President Barack Obama used as a federal compromise bill knowing it was a GOP idea, the Affordable Care Act, and passed with no Republican support. In Trump's administration, at least 66 Heritage Foundation employees and former employees have found a place, and they have made several recommendations to Trump's cabinet, including Betsy DeVos, Jeff Sessions, and many others. Brett Kavanaugh was selected for the U.S. Supreme Court based on a list from Heritage. Their reach has been all-encompassing, and the number of people with Heritage ties in the highest levels of government have been legion. They have also worked to carry out the vision of their founder when it comes to voting. The Heritage Foundation is driving a great deal of the rhetoric surrounding voter fraud, which is exceedingly rare in real life, and just this overall narrative being used to justify keeping the wrong people from voting. There is something inherently anti-democratic 
about the idea of not allowing certain Americans their say because you know your message is deeply unpopular and your platform will be harmful for so many people. But you don't care enough about those very people to actually appeal to them. And that is the biggest reason why we should do whatever is necessary to go vote on Tuesday. Our greatest experiment, our fragile democracy, is at stake. It is being stripped from the inside, and it has been for a very long time. And if we don't have our say at the ballot box, every chance we get, our say may no longer be needed. While we would like to think that voters always vote rationally, the fact is that people make voting decisions based on a lot of things. Party, likability, charm, how much a candidate or issue on the ballot will benefit them or their group, what they've heard about a candidate, good or bad. And sometimes voters are informed and sometimes they're misinformed. And sometimes that misinformation includes conspiracy theories. This Wednesday, November 7th, on Oops, I Talk Politics, Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly will be talking about George Soros, who is pretty much the right wing's Emmanuel Goldstein with purse strings. And related to that, they'll be talking about conspiracy theories. Their shows are always filled with great spirited conversation, and I'm really looking forward to this episode. And you should listen to it too. Oops, I Talk Politics is one of the awesome podcasts on the Flying Machine Network. Listen and subscribe to them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers. Or go to their website, franzradio.com slash oopsitalkpolitics. And to check out all of our shows on the Flying Machine Network, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. I'm going to say it one more time. Make sure you vote. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on iTunes or on Android. Go on potsterpodcast.com slash download and the links are there. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't have to wait. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.